Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of the Wine Pair Podcast, where I give Carmela a much-needed break, and then I get the chance to interview people who are actually involved in making wine, which is pretty cool. So this week, I'm talking to David Babich, the CEO of Babich Wines, an organic and sustainable wine producer from New Zealand. So here we go. Hello and welcome to the Wine Pair Podcast. I'm Joe, your sommelier of a reasonably priced wine. And for this special episode, I am on my own as my wine pairing partner in crime is taking care of other things, probably making cakes for her baby cake business. Now, as a quick orientation to our podcast, what we usually do in each episode is learn about and taste and review three wines that are reasonably priced, which means under $20 and should be easy for you to find. However, for this special set of episodes, we will interview people who are involved in actually making wine. Because part of what we want to do with our podcast is to educate ourselves and you on different aspects of the wine industry and wine knowledge in a fun and entertaining and unstuffy way, and even fun and entertaining as Decanter Magazine has called our podcast. And that is what we're doing today. So in a minute, you'll hear my awesome interview with David Babich, who is, again, the CEO of Babich Wines in New Zealand. And their family has been making wine in New Zealand since 1916. It's a really amazing story. And a small plug before we get to the interview. If you like what you're hearing or are interested in hearing our other regular episodes, please subscribe to our podcast so you can hear more, especially since you're only hearing one half of the Wine Pair Podcast in this episode in me. Um, you can visit us at our website, thewinepairpodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the Wine Pair Podcast. But hey, without further ado, let's get to the interview with David Babich. Hello, David, and welcome to the Wine Pair Podcast. We are so happy to have you here, and we really appreciate you generously offering your time to talk with us. Uh, great to be here, Joe, uh, and uh, the feeling's mutual. I, uh, I really, I've really been looking forward to having a chat with you. Oh, great. That's awesome. Okay, so again, for our listeners, uh, David Babich is the CEO of Babich Wines, which is New Zealand's oldest family-owned winery. And when we say old, we mean old. The Babich family has been making wine in New Zealand since David's grandfather started 107 years ago. Uh, but rather than me telling you about it, I'm going to have you, David, I'm going to have you tell our listeners about it, how you got into winemaking, which I can only imagine has a lot to do with the long history of winemaking in your family. But without further ado, David, please, uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us your story. Sure. Um, the story of our, our family in New Zealand and, and Babich Wines kind of goes back to um, Croatia uh, my grandfather was born there in, in a fairly poor part of Croatia, down on the Dalmatian, the Dalmatian part of Croatia, not on the coast, but over the hills from the coast. So maybe you know five or six miles from the coast, but there's a mountain range in between. So they were very uh, in a farming district. So born in 1895 into peasant farmers, and uh, Croatia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that changed after the First World War um, and, and, it, and it morphed into Yugoslavia. And then more recently, um, that broke up and, uh, and ended up as Croatia. He's born into a, a really poor, poor family doing some, um, you know, subsistence farming, uh, including um, grape growing and winemaking. But the concern within Croatia, especially amongst the poor end of the population was conscription into the Austrian military. And that, that would happen um, when the when kids, boys turned 16 
and you know it could work out okay or or not so you're sort of you know you're at the mercy of uh, someone else's army really and you're the expendables so um, what the response of a lot of the population was, um, and this is true outside of Croatia, and if you think of Italy or Ireland, um, it's just, just go to the new world. So my great-grandfather was planning this for his boys, um, and my great-grandparents had seven boys, um, no daughters, and they realized they couldn't support seven, seven families as they matured. So they were going to have to leave. And, and he was figuring out where, where to send these kids. So in 1904, the oldest son is coming up to being 16 years old. And my grandfather's traveled over the mountain range to the coastal town of Makraskar. And he's staying with a friend of his. And he asked this guy, where do you think I should send my boys? And the answer from this guy was go to New Zealand. Uh, and, the, and he, this guy had actually been to New Zealand, done a year or two of work in New Zealand and come back. And he, and he would probably go again to New Zealand, do another few years, earn some income and come back. And, and he said, New Zealand's a young country, and it really was a young country in 1904. It had been getting settled by European civilians um, only for about 60 years at that point. So it was just a very young emerging country under, under British governance. So he said, look, New Zealand's a young country, and if your boys work, they can get ahead. And that wasn't a proposition in Croatia. You could work, you just wouldn't get ahead. You couldn't break the class system. The first son, Yakov, got sent to New Zealand. And this guy, he's 16 years old. He doesn't speak English. He's got no money. He's really got no possessions. And he gets put on a boat. And no one's meeting him at the other end. It's just uh, write us a letter when you get there and let us know you're okay. Three or four months pass and they get a letter uh, from Yakov, and he goes, yeah, I'm good, I've landed here, I've got some work, this is a good country, see my brothers, you know, when the time is right. So uh, in 1906, they send the next oldest brother, who's turning 16, his name is Matty, and then in 1908, they send Ivan, and in 1910, uh, my grandfather leaves with his older brother. His older brother, Stipa, is turning 16, but my grandfather's 14. And he, he leaves home at 14, goes to New Zealand to join his brothers, never sees his parents again, just one-way trip, and for a, for a better life. And so he anyway, sails out to New Zealand, joins his brothers, and they're doing some quite hard manual labor, which involves digging, digging a product called cowrie gum. Uh, so cowrie gum was used to make high-grade varnish. They break it down, put a solvent in it, and, and use it in varnish. So you have to dig it out of swamps. So my grandfather started when he landed uh, as a 14-year-old in the swamps in Northland, New Zealand, digging cowrie gum. And, and the brothers were fairly industrious. They were really young, but they started a cowrie gum broking business, and they also had a general store. So they weren't mucking around. You know, they were like aged between 14 and 20, but they already had a couple of businesses underway. And then at 16, my grandfather decides, look, he's going to be a, be a vintner. And he plants a vineyard. So he leases some land and plants a vineyard. He's 16 years old. And then when he's 19, and he continues gum digging because they need the income. And right. when he's 19, he starts making wine, gets a wine license, starts making wine under under the brand Babbage Brothers. And, um, and that's the advent of our business. It's 1916. And he starts selling wine locally. They're still up in Northland. And then they've earned in 1911. Um, so my grandfather's only been there a year, but the other brothers have been there longer. And they've raised enough money to put a deposit on some land on the outskirts of Auckland. Um, so they're interested in moving out of the gum fields and moving south down to Auckland. And so, that, so they buy, buy this land in 1911, but can't afford to move onto it. 
And they keep gum digging right through to 1919 um, and trying to pay off some of this land. And then in 1919, they moved down onto it and transferred the vineyard. They, they planted grapes already in, and maybe in 1917, he would have planted grapes on the new land. And he's still got the vineyard up north. So he's between two vineyards and continue to make and sell wine. They moved down onto the vineyard, but it's the 1920s, it's post-war New Zealand, and New Zealand really suffered in the First World War. We had the second highest per capita loss of soldiers, so that the sort of working force of New Zealand was really gutted because of this war. And New Zealand probably had a cash liquidity crisis had a loss of key population and working um, age population. So it was really in trouble in the 1920s. And then in the 30s, there was the Great Depression. Then you went into the 40s and the Second World War. So you think of a time to start a business right. and what you're ramping into. You're, you're going into 20 years of um, suppressed economic growth or negative growth. It's a really tough time. My grandfather said from moving onto the farm in 1919 through to um, probably midway through the Second World War, they couldn't take one pound off the mortgage. And they had discussions around the table, should we walk away? But what the farm was doing was feeding them. And they said, if we walk away, we, we won't have food. So we have to keep going forward and just try to explain to people we can't pay the bills and try to work out the, work out the mortgage. So they, they kept plugging away on this and... Uh, the change point came actually really kind of very ironically. U.S. soldiers were stationed in New Zealand and uh, they were fighting a war in the Pacific. And unlike New Zealand soldiers, uh, the U.S. soldiers were quite well paid and actually had U.S. dollars. And there was enough sort of Italians and Greeks that they wanted to drink red wine. And my grandfather was making red wine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, we dad dad is born in 1932 so in you know 1942 he's a uh, he's a 10 year old and he remembers us really well guys coming up in willie's jeeps and um and buying wine and these guys are really welcome to visitors and respected and all of a sudden there's a bit of liquidity in the business because there was a you know a market was opening up with these guys you know that went on for a few years but grandfather said that was the first time they could take any money off the mortgage and it sort of changed the position for the winery that, you know, you could get off the back foot onto the front foot. And that was, uh, you know, a real pivotal moment. And then in the 50s, all of our own guys from the war, you know, in the late 40s, they'd come back from Europe and were settling down and civilian life was resuming. But what they learned in Europe, fighting their way through Italy and France, was sort of how nice the life was of uh, you know, having a bottle of wine with with a meal, mm-hmm. and and so wars are really about delivering a whole lot of negative stuff. Um, but if you look hard enough, there's some sort of you know positive stuff can also ironically emerge out of um, out of something so negative. And and for New Zealand, it changed the culture a little bit. And so so the so- soldiers group came back to New Zealand, and were interested in in table wine and the culture of of wine with food. And, and that was the business we were in. So there was this sort of jump up in, in base uh, demand, which didn't exist before the war. Um, it was hard business before the war. The population wanted beer and whiskey before the war, and afterwards they wanted table wine. So um, the business 
uh, um, really had a change point through the 50s and 60s and it was growing. Dad was involved in the business. He, he left school quite young and joined in. And, and then my uncle, late Uncle Joe, joined in, in the late 50s um, and, and took us to a new level again on the winemaking side. And then I think much more recently, kicking off in the mid 80s but really growing for us from around 2000 onwards is the advent of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc and we would sort of term that point from 1985 onwards as as sort of more the modern industry which is built around the growing of Sauvignon, the making of Sauvignon wine and selling Sauvignon to an international um, uh, client base and and that that would be our modern industry. Um, I see so uh, before the mid 80s you were not doing a lot of Sauvignon Blanc is that correct? Not much at all. It, it mm. was a variety, but you know, Sauvignon didn't register globally at that point. Um, we were making a lot of Chardonnay. There, there was a product that you see a little bit now um, in Europe, which is Muller Turgau, which is a hybrid. So we were doing a lot of Muller Turgau, some Semillon, some Chardonnay, and Sauvignon was in, in the set, uh, but in a really, really small way and often blended into something else. And uh, but also a lot of reds, Pinot Noirs, Bordeaux reds, that sort of thing. And we weren't sure when we started to see traction for Sauvignon, uh, Marlborough Sauvignon, whether this was a sustainable thing or a, more of a flash in the pan. There was no real guidance globally about whether this was sustainable. And so we were tentative, and a lot of, a lot of people were tentative in the industry, and some experienced industry participants, you know, were saying after ten years of Sauvignon that, that this is going to stop. You know, this is not a really something to continue. Yeah, there was there was skepticism, and a skepticism amongst senior people in the industry. Not everyone, I'm saying the industry is skeptical. People continue to invest in it, but you kind of did it with a view that the music might stop here, and we need to do something else. And, um, and of course the music hasn't stopped and, you know, we're 30, 35, 37 years down the road, um, on Sauvignon and, it, and it's been, it's been great. It's transformed. Yeah. I mean, if there's a signature wine at this point for New Zealand, it's Sauvignon Blanc. So yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah. We've got good reputation around some other things we do, mainly Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. other interesting varietals, Pinot Gris, Grigio, uh, but in a Pinot Gris style is, is really popular. We do some very good high-end Bordeaux reds and much more in the more classical Bordeaux style, you know, lower alcohol at wines that age very well. But they tend to be in the you know, more expensive wines. Right. And, uh, and Syrah is the other thing. We do really good Syrah out of Hawke's Bay. So this is not a Marlborough product, but a Hawke's Bay product. So New Zealand produces very good Syrahs. But the market is quite small in these areas. Even the Pinot market, by comparison, is, is pretty small, whereas the whites market, Sauvignon, has risen up into the you know, the upper end of varietals that people want to drink. So it's been a, it's been a great ride. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about your wines in a second, but I do want to ask you just about, thank you for the story of your family that resonates with me you know my my grandparents came from italy and very similar you know working manual labor before they started doing other things um but i'm curious about you and your involvement in the family business did you always expect that you would be part of the family wine business or did you think maybe i'd go in a different direction and kind of what what drew what drew you in well um i grew up at the winery and the winery you know that was our playground for us as my brothers and cousins and 
as, as kids, that was our playground. We would, it would be locked, but we'd just break in uh, various <laughs> ways to get into the building. And security wasn't what, what it is today. Now, you know, there's <laughs> chain link fencing and cameras and stuff. But in the old days, geez, half time wasn't even locked. <laughs> so the, the winery was always interesting, uh, even as a kid. And, you know, my grandfather was alive. He died when I was 15 and he was always in the winery and, and we got along really well. And, uh, and my father and uncle were working away and we, you know, during vintage, we'd be hanging around and getting in the way and, and interested in what was going on. And we had the vineyard. So, um, we'd always be, um, running around in the vineyard and, that was that was the environment we grew up in. So sort of front and center, this is what we do. And um, so for me, um, I always knew I got along well with dad and my uncle and and always had this feeling that, you know, I'm going to do this when um, when I get older. And um, so I went through school focused on um, actually <laughs> pretty dry subjects, um, chemistry, biology and physics, uh, statistics and calculus and uh and english was mandatory so you had to do that and i wasn't very good at it but i was pretty good at those other subjects which were sort of very scientific and mathematical and uh and so then i finished uh school year 13 and uh went to roseworthy college uh and embarked upon um my degree in winemaking enology and viticulture mm-hmm. and uh, that was from 87 uh through to 89 so three years at, at college doing that uh, and then I came back in, into the business, cellar floor, just learned the practical side of, of dragging hoses. I was also running the lab for a while, um, which is closer to the engine room. Do that practical side of it. You know, it's good to be a winemaker, but you still have to know how a pump works. And uh, so I did a um, two or three years of that. And then I was sort of looking at our business and thought, you know, I could be the winemaker. And, we, you know, we need, need the winemaker. It's a pretty fundamental cornerstone right. job. But uh, my Joe, my uncle, uh, late Joe now, he, he died uh, about a year ago. Joe, Joe was the winemaker at the time and doing a great job. And so it was going to be quite a bit of time before I took over from Joe. And I thought we could also use, um, you know, the next generation, which was me, um, on the business side. So I enrolled at Auckland University in a commerce degree and graduated with a major in marketing and management. So now I had the marketing management side and the uh, and the winemaking and viticultural side. So I was getting fairly set up on the certainly on the schooling side of um, being involved in the business. But then I decided to get a job outside of the business, and I went into pharmaceuticals. And, and the attraction to pharmaceuticals was was that it was scientific based. You know, you've got a it's a big R and D program on pharma, and um, so I was interested in scientific based um, branded goods um, that go out to market with a lot of investment in in the brand and in the sales and marketing component. So I actually worked in pharma for seven years in New Zealand. That really taught me a lot. The other the other thing that I benefited was was this corporate multinational that I was working for. And that's diametrically opposed to the sort of things you learn in a multi-generational family business. So there's a lot of discipline that um, that was taught to me through that um, type of business. And there are things taught to me that don't do this, uh, don't have endless meetings and <laughs> don't have committees to make decisions that are, you know, really important and, and time bound. Uh, so, so I try to avoid bringing a lot of that discipline into our business, but a lot of discipline I brought in around um, better systems and structures about how to run our business. 
the planning function, the execution function, having budgets, measuring um, expenditure, measuring re- revenue, running P&Ls, that sort of thing. So just running the business better. And, you know, it's really um, in- integrating with my father and uncle who are very good at running a business, but they know inherently how to run it because they've been in it for, you know, 30 to 40 years. So I can't teach them how to run a business but they can't scale the business because it requires their direct involvement. So, um, so we were kind of at a bit of a crossroad and, um, they understood the constraint of knowing everything and being the cornerstone people in the business who everybody comes to for an answer. They knew that was a constraint and they really, you talk about intergenerational handover and the, and the difficulties of that. They were pushing it onto me. <laughs> there was no difficulty. You know, over the space of probably 20 years, we just turned a tap off and turned a tap on, and it was just seamless. In fact, one day I realized I'm running the business, and then when I reflected on it, I realized I'd actually been running it for the last two or three years, and it was that seamless that I didn't even realize. And we were talking every day about things, but increasingly they were just saying, we'll do what you think. And they had huge experience, you know, like dad retired three and a half, four years ago, at, at, at 87 but he started in the business as a 16 year old he did 71 years in the business mm. and you know like that that was sort of experience that i was uh, moving you know into what well, dad would have done 50 years when I, I sort of rejoined the business so i was sort of upskilling our business on process i couldn't really teach him a great deal about um about how to run this business but we could run it better through Im- improved process uh, the other thing that obviously I did was I came into the business and said, you know, we just need to grow. And um, so I was a bit of fresh enthusiasm. And we started buying more and more land in Marlborough. We expanded our Hawke's Bay vineyards as well. We formed new relationships with a set of growers who, who are really good growers for us. And we built a new winery uh, in Marlborough to handle our Marlborough production. So geographically, the North Island's biggest city is Auckland, and we are domiciled in Auckland, and and all of our roots are Auckland. But 92% of our production is at the top of the South Island in Mm. Marlborough, and our winery, our large winery is in Marlborough, and our small winery is our home winery in, in Auckland. So we're spread across these two regions um, with, with most, most of our asset now residing in, at the top of the South Island in Marlborough. So, so really, I was probably the enthusiasm to drive that, that change. Yeah. Do you think if you hadn't taken a, like a, a detour for several years into the pharmaceutical industry, do you think you would have you know, done the same? Like if you hadn't done that, would you have made the same choices? Or do you think that was pretty fundamental to how you saw that you could help the, the wine business grow? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I reflect back on uh, what I brought to the business and, and it falls into three pots or even subset two pots, um, there's the educational side of what I've had, which is winemaking, viticulture, and, and the commerce side. And that's really university-driven. Um, and then there's the experience at uh, in pharma. And um, collectively, you know, I really highly regard that seven years in pharma um, because it really taught me a lot of business discipline um, that was going to become very beneficial because Dad and Joe were doing a great job 
But as far as business goes, they're running it like cowboys. Things are happening from the hip and they're reactive. But the business was really successful. So it's not a criticism. It's more that you can't expand and shoot from the hip. You need to, you need to lift your whole systems and be able to delegate to people, um, in order to, to grow. And so, um, I think initially what I did, what I did lend in is just another person thinking about the business. But over the course of time, I introduce cost calculation models, growth forecasts, cash flow requirements. Hired people into finance department to plan better and to give better reports. You know, we just right across every element of the business, we just became better at it. And I'm not describing a situation where we've reached the end of that. This is just continual improvement. We are a business that has to keep innovating. Actually, this, this part is, um, at the heart of being successful in the wine industry. There's a bunch of rules that you kind of need to adhere to. But the requirement to keep innovating is right up there. As soon as you stop looking at your business and you stop altering something to make your business go better, you're going backwards. And if there is an analogy, I would say you are, you're sailing a yacht from A to B across an ocean. And if you get on the yacht and you set your course and you set your sails and you set your rudder, and you don't touch anything then for um, halfway through the journey, you're going to be well off course. You're just going to be somewhere else. You're going somewhere else. So what the yacht needs is continual adjustment to stay on course to where you want to go. And a business, any business, is, is that. And so you're continually adjusting your business to better suit the needs of the consumer. So that's that's really at the heart of actually the wine business, but any business is this continual adjustment. But when I look at our business, we have modified our business over any particular 10-year period where I look at the start of the period and the end of the period and the business is quite radically different. And it's been slow change. It's happened over 10 years. But when you look at it in a 10-year, you go, wow, that's some big change. It's big, yeah. So yeah. We, what would you say right now, like in the wine industry today, are you feeling pressure for innovation? And maybe this will... We'll talk a little bit about your wine specifically, but I notice you've always been, or most of the time you've been sustainable, a movement towards organic. But is that yes. part of the pressure and innovation that you're seeing in the, or the expectation, I should say, around innovation that you're seeing in the market? Or are there other things that you're also seeing that right now that are pushing innovation? Yeah, I would say that innovation, you know, some of the changes we've made in the past is changing wine, you know, changing varietals, replanting vineyards with more popular varietals, changing region, changing who we sell wine to, you know, domestic versus export, investing in export um, and developing export markets. Those have been you know, really big fundamental shifts in what the business does. Prior to 1997, we were selling more domestically than export. These days, we are 93 mm. or 94% export. Wow. Um, you see a shift there. And, you know, so I care about things like foreign exchange, um, whereas earlier, you know, in the 90s, that wasn't even a thing you thought about. So I think looking at this point forward, the New Zealand wine industry is reaching a point of maturity. Uh, up until this point, it's continued to be growing at quite a, you know, double digit growth. Our sales in the US are operating at 
consistently, you know, three-year rolling growth rate annualized is over 10%. Uh, and that's gone on for, um, you know, 25 years. A lot of things are settling down into, into a pattern that's quite readable. And, and part of that pattern is big brand suppliers with, you know, large parent owners Yep. Are, are strong participants in this sector. And, and so that's easily recognizable. You see those brands and, and we would refer to them as the, the usual suspects. <laughs> and um, they're always represented. <laughs> I mean, they do a great job, but they, that's, that's the big end of town. It's our belief that actually you just don't fight the big end of town. That's uh, they, they just have all the muscle and, and actually just massive amount of advantage. That's a, a, a David and Goliath fight that um, where David doesn't win. But what we can do as a, as a brand, what we're really interested in doing is, is bring wines to the market that are interesting to probably a subset of the, the general Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc consumer. And at a, at a very high level, they're just better wines. They are handcrafted wines made in smaller volumes with greater estate ownership of the vineyards and a lot more craft going into these wines. So that's, that's our high level. Dropping down a level, these wines are all sustainable. So people who have an interest in the world not imploding um, environmentally can can rest easier at night with a glass of after a glass of our wine because it's all sustainable. And and we really feel strongly about that. We've been farming for in excess of 107 years in New Zealand, and we have to do it for another hundred years plus. And and that happens because you're sustainable. And then dropping, uh, you know, to another level again, we're really interested in organics and organics is quite exciting because, you know, we've, we're not using all the more commercial approaches on, on the organic blocks with, um, with sprays in particular and trying to bring organic wines through to the market that are, that fit, obviously organic wines fit sustainability, but that they fit drinkability and quality. So we're making these very high quality, often they're reserve grade wines. We're interested in bringing these to the market and seeing the growth in the organic side. And um, that's really interesting. We've learned a lot about organics over the last sort of 15 years. That's something we're trying to do more of. It's a bit of push and pull because we need the consumer to come with us on this journey. And different markets are at different positions. Australia and UK are really wanting a lot of, you know, to grow organics on their shelves and to have this section, not as this crazy section off in the corner gathering dust, but actually as part of their regular offering that they have this lineup of, in this case, New Zealand wines and his, these, these wines are organic within the mix. So it's sort of more taken into mainstream. Potentially the early providers of organic wine were also interested in maybe other styles that can sit alongside organics, but not necessarily, which is natural wine and orange wine. And yep. so you might have had natural orange organic in a, in a bottle and that can be confronting. Even and, vegan. Yeah. And vegan. Well, vegan's easier. Uh, all of our wine is uh, organic wine is vegan as well, but yeah, that's in the mix as well. And we can talk a bit more about that. Um, we, we really are interested in, in, in vegan wine as part of our offering, but the orange and natural and organic mix possibly put off some early adopters and what our organic wine isn't is natural or orange. So um, it's just organic. So it's more about a viticultural position rather than a winemaking approach. 
So natural and organic are more about what you do in a winemaking position. You're not adding any preservative, which is sulfur, um, or you're fermenting on skins, which is orange. Um, so our Sauvignon, our organic Sauvignon, isn't isn't those things. People will try this. When I'm selling that wine, I'm talking about it being a high, you know, reserve grade, single vineyard wine that also happens to be organic. So it's just part of the mix, but it's a really nice um, expression of terroir for that vineyard because it's single vineyard. And, you know, just good wine in its own right, but it happens to be organic. And But I think what's happened in the US is the early adopters tried these confronting wines. You've had them, I'm sure, and I've had them, and I kind of like them because they are – these are wines, I'm talking about natural wines and, yep. and orange wines. These wines push the envelope. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of some of these wines as a bit like a fashion show where someone's wearing some outrageous fashionable item, fashion item, <laughs> and, and you'd go, that is so impractical, you'd never wear that. But a practical offshoot of that uh, does make it onto the shelves. It's the essence of the thing on the, on the catwalk Peered down into something that's actually usable. And then these, you know, you're always got to applaud people who really push the envelope because and do something. And we do that internally as well. We've made orange wine, we can make natural wine. We just don't release them. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> way less commercial. But we get to see them ourselves and we drink them ourselves just, just to get a feel for what we're talking about here. And, and sort of enjoy that winemaking experience and experiment. And, and so we do a lot of this sort of stuff internally and it just drives our thought, our adoption of we could do a bit of this and, and do, you know, we could experiment more in this area or that's not working, let's do less of that. Um, the thing that we are sort of, you know, mucking around with but we're, we're not early adopters of is low alcohol. Um, mm. There's uh, good products out on the market um, that are in this area and we probably have to do more in this area. I'm thinking it's 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 of interest. Question for you on that. Just just on a side note, I know you're still digging into it. I my experience so far with low or zero alcohol wine has been around body. Yeah, that because yeah. alcohol gives the you know some body to the wine, and so is that. Do you think is that the key problem, or is there something else? No, I think that's it. You know, you take it. What alcohol does in the mouth? If you have thirteen percent alcohol, um, I know you're aware of this, but for the benefit of the of the audiences, uh, wine uh, alcohol, the alcohol component adds its body and 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 um weight to the palate mm-hmm. and so it doesn't i mean there's a bit of you can smell ethanol uh, alcohol on the on the nose and it's and it's got its it, it's it's volatile so it'll, it'll lift up your aromatics and present them aromatically to the nose but on the palate that's where the, the big issue is is that what do you replace that body with there's not a there's not a thing the only other thing that adds a lot of body is sugar um, so sometimes what you see is these wines and they're just a bit sweeter and that's we don't necessarily want to replace alcohol with sweetness it's not the same thing but alcohol does have sweetness um, in its presentation it doesn't have any sugar in it but it does have sweetness and so you you end up with this hole in the palate or this mouth feel that it's really hard to replace. And um, that's the that's the big challenge. You end up with thin wine, um, and there's something missing, and uh, that's that's the gap. There's not a 
not a very ready answer to that mm-hmm. component. It's the missing jigsaw piece. We're not allowed to add things like glycerol to wine. There are products you could put in that would fill this gap, but you, you, you can make wine out of grapes, so you can't have additives to make some other product. Right. Um, that must be purely from these grapes. And so that's the challenge. So, so in effect, low alcohol, and I'm talking 8 or 9%, is an easier easier achievement than zero alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, regardless, these are these are great products for the future. Uh, it's just, just getting how, how do you make it that it looks exactly or, or really close to a wine with twelve um, percent alcohol. Um, it's a challenge. We've we've struggled with that, but it's uh, it's certainly on the to do list, and we keep keep chipping away at this with our own internal understanding. Um, through through trials that we do within the winery. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there's challenges no matter what you do, and it's a it's a road that you're on, um, which usually involves a lot of, lot of trial work, no matter what the end topic is, but you're trialing all the time to try and improve, and it's part of innovation. Um, the job is never done. It's just, it's just a road that you're on. So organics, we would regard that as a road we're on, and we're always trying to improve this, and mostly it's viticultural. So the problem with organics is the endpoint cost ends up being quite a premium to the regular wine, and the reason for the premium is, is twofold. It costs more per hectare to operate organically because there's no quick fix about spraying the weeds, and so you have to manually control the weeds. In the end, it's quite hard to manually control the weeds and they end up being noted by the grapevine as I've got a lot of competition here. And the grapevine's response to that is I will produce less grapes. So um, on a per acre basis, you produce 20 to 25% less grapes, get less tonnes per per hectare or acre, and uh, they cost you more. So you've got this double hit. You spent more but got less. And that is the reflective part that you see on the shelf where uh, an organic wine costs 4 or $5 more is really that component. So that's the bit that we really try and zero in on and we've tried weed mats. A lot of it is about weed management. We've tried weed mats. We've tried different cultivation processes. We've tried, uh, we've tried heaps and heaps of things. <laughs> but do you really- think that the organic and sustainable aspects of your wines makes them better? Do you feel like there's a demonstrable difference in the quality of the wine that you make? I think there is, but it's for reasons that you're not alluding to. If I grew two vineyards and they both cropped at 14 tons a hectare of grapes, and I harvest those grapes, one of those vineyards is organic and the next door vineyard block block to that vineyard is, is, is conventional, and I go through and make those two wines, I think those wines are going to be the same wines. They're going to look the same. When I say they look the same, uh, you know, they they're going to be have have not much material difference between them. They're both going to be fairly presentable wines, and stylistically, probably pretty similar. <clears throat> what makes organic wines better is that because of the weed challenge, they crop lower, so you have greater intensity of fruit expression. And then organic wines tend to be single vineyard, so then you get this. <laughs> You get better fruit concentration through lower cropping and you get more terroir expression because a single vineyard. So we don't run 25 organic vineyards. We tend to concentrate our organic capability on, on one vineyard. And then if we want to have another one, go to another vineyard and develop it. But they end up being either one vineyard or, or two vineyards blended together, but they're not pan Marlborough. 
So they're not across 25 vineyards because for an organic vineyard, you, you need different machinery to run it. So you tend to do the whole vineyard, which could be you know, 100 acres, and you've got machinery that runs an organic vineyard, but, you, you know, you don't need a – well, you have a sprayer, but it only sprays organic sprays, which is mainly sulfur. You, can, you have a sprayer, but you're not allowed to put non-organic stuff through that sprayer. So it would be expensive to have a, a little block on a vineyard because you now need all of the organic and all of the non-organic gear to run it. So you tend to concentrate your efforts on a big big area for organics. But what it does is you have more concentrated fruit with single vineyard terroir expression. So I think these wines are, that we produce are definitely reserve grade, but not specifically because we grew them organic. It's the, it's the, it's the unintended effect of organic. That's great. That's the best explanation I've ever heard. That that makes tons of sense. There is one other uh, rider to that, and that is that what we do note, the organic vineyard grapes do develop thicker skins because we're not protecting them with um, conventional spray programs. And thicker skins do develop, that skins hold the flavor. So thicker skins equal more intensity of flavor. So what we're running at the moment is a trial of two blocks. One's organic, one isn't. And we're interested after five or six years is do we actually see a difference driven not by crop load and intensity or terroir, but skin thickness? Is that delivering a benefit? Um, we're too early in that trial, we're only one or two years in. Uh, but over time, we expect that skin thickness element to start to present. And at that point, I may modify my answer to you. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that'll be a great experiment. And I can see your science background <laughs> coming through um, very yeah, clearly yeah, yeah, yeah. in this. This is awesome. So, Joe, earlier um, I mentioned the, the first of the generation that moved to New Zealand, the oldest son, 16 years old. His name was, was Yakov. And uh, he, was, he was the one who formed a beachhead in New Zealand for the rest of the brothers to come. Um, but when he left Croatia, you know, he was 16 years old. He didn't speak English. He didn't have any money and he wasn't being met by anybody when he arrived in New Zealand. So the first few days and nights in New Zealand, he would have been trying to figure things out without actually speaking the language and, and having no money. So I expect he would have slept under a tree for a few days. Yakov was in New Zealand, um, digging gum and and running a general store, which he had set up, and uh, generally being more and more engaged in business over the 10 years he was in New Zealand. But during that time, he was also writing to a girl in the village that he left. So it was somebody that he grew up with uh, in the village, um, and they stayed in contact. And, and just thinking of it from a village perspective, most of the boys had left the village and, and left villages throughout Europe, went to the New World. And what often happened is, they wrote letters back and, and the future wife would leave the homeland and come out. He did the opposite. He said, I'm coming home. I want to see my parents and uh, we can get married. And so he, he said goodbye to the brothers. And on our website is pictures of the brothers and Yakov is shaking hands with his four younger brothers. That's a symbolic photo. Uh, he's in a, he's dressed to travel. He's in a traveler's coat. He's got a hat on. The others don't have hats, don't have coats. Uh, and he's holding a bag. And, and so it's a set-up photo to say, I'm leaving, and, and they're shaking hands goodbye. Yakov sails back to Croatia, goes back to the village, and, and actually gets married. But uh, it, it's, uh, it's 1914, and he doesn't know it, and nobody knows it. But World War I is going to start in a month after him landing. Oh so he, 
He lands there and they get married and then things unfold very quickly for the start of World War One. And, and Europe's at peace. Ten days later, Europe's at war. And uh, this war unfolds. Yakov's very quickly um, conscripted into the Austrian military and fights the whole war. He finished up um, fighting in Italy in a losing engagement. He's on the wrong side of the conflict and um, ends up taking shrapnel wounds and gets shipped back to um, Zagreb Hospital where he's tended to, stitched up, and he recovers. And uh, then he goes back to the town we're from in rural Croatia called Runovic, and he resumes farming um, with his wife and, and parents and his, and his youngest brother. And uh, he, he resumes that farming life, and life is good for a while, and then Spanish flu comes along and he succumbs to Spanish flu. So by 1920, he's, um, and, and possibly even actually 1919, he's, uh, he's died of Spanish flu. And this is the reason, this cuts to the heart of why they left Croatia. And, and why so many people left old Europe is, you know, you're someone else's war fodder. And uh, if you don't die in a war, something else bad happens. And, mm. um, you know, you end up dying of something else, which in his case was Spanish flu, which killed um, about, uh, I think it's about 40% of the people in rural Croatia died of Spanish flu. And in particular, men aged 20 to 30 years old, um, it was um, your own immune system was what attacked you in the end with Spanish flu. And the stronger you were, the stronger your immune system. And Yakov was really strong and hence uh, a victim of Spanish flu. So that that was, uh, that cuts to the heart of why uh, they went to New Zealand and they were well advised to stay in New Zealand. Um, and the other four brothers did. It's it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, just the sacrifices that family made so that we can be where we are. I had yeah. a, my, my grandfather on my dad's side, his first wife died of Spanish flu. Yes. And yeah. it's know, remarkable. It's, it's amazing how much it affected that generation. Yeah. And after a war as well. So you lost young men to a war and mm-hmm. then you lost young men and other other um, civilians to uh, to a non-war event, which you know, took out such a big slice of Europe and, and other parts of the world. I reflect back and I go to Croatia. I was in Croatia three weeks ago. But my grand, great-grandparents kept one son behind and he was the one who was going to take over the farm, which he did in, in the fullness of time. And uh, and I'm very close to um, the grands, grandkids of, of that uh, great uncle of mine. And um, they kept one son behind, but six sons left um five went to new zealand one went to argentina so this uh these kids left at 16 so from a parent's point of view i often reflect about my great-grandparents and say they had a family and then over the course of six or seven years they didn't have a family and the rest of their engagement with with those boys was through letters apart from yakov they never saw any of them again and they got letters like i've got married you know this is a picture of my wife We've had children. Here's our family. Yeah, it's They're really we have tough. no con- we have no concept of what yeah. that the what they went through, what the sacrifices were, the communication, yeah. all that. We yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And then you get a letter. Oh, dad's died. Yes. You know? And then mum's died, and they're gone. 
So, yeah, it's nowadays we're so connected where, you know, if your kid goes traveling around the world, you know, daily email contact, um, not snail mail like they, you know, four months to get a letter. Right. And, you know, three, four letters a year with no quick response. <laughs> now we just Zoom call like yeah. you and me doing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just, it makes me just think how wonderful it is and how proud your great grandparents would have been that you are continuing the family business with the family name. I mean, it's wonderful. It's really quite a testimony to the sacrifices they made and to the hard work your grandfather and your father and you and your and and your family have made so it's amazing yeah that's it's exactly the way i look at it joe i i go to their graves in croatia in runovic and say thank you to them Mm -hmm. you know a really tough decision to do what they did but they knew the alternative was a lot worse Mm-hmm. Um, of staying was, you know, they're just going to be going to funerals of their own children. And either way, they lose them, but they lose them um, not not to conflict or, or to j- just dying. Uh, they just lose them to the other side of the world, but they lose them to a better life ultimately for their descendants. My, my grandfather had a great life. You know, he worked like a dog, but he grew up in this, uh, at this winery, had a family, everyone was safe, everyone you know, grew old and died of his kids. No one died in conflict. No one died of disease. Uh, they're just, my grandparents died of old age. Yeah. Um, the next generation is, you know, um, a, a couple of them have died. Uh, you know, everyone's in their 80s or 90s. And we've got a thriving business, um, which was sort of all the boxes ticked as far as my great grandparents would be concerned. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. I do have one more question for you. Kind of, it's not quite, it's like tangential on this, but kind of related. So in our family, when you come to Seattle, because someday you'll come to Seattle, I feel like I just feel that. And uh, so in my family, we have this longstanding tradition of a Sunday night dinner. And so when you come, we'll we'll have dueling stories about immigration and families and sacrifice. It'll be wonderful because I feel like we're, we're about, we're probably close to the same age and all that kind of stuff. So, but you know, we get the whole family together every Sunday. We're, as I mentioned, we're of Italian heritage. And so it's usually Italian food and you're coming over. We always have a nice wine. So if you're coming over, what Babbage wine or wines are you bringing and why? Uh, yeah, good question. I do have a real soft spot for the organic range of wines. So thinking about it, um, I would definitely have the uh, organic Pinot. It's reserve grade Pinot. Pinot is, is arguably the best food wine because it can go with such a broad range of foods. Talking my language already. Yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, Pinot. I'm a big fan of Pinot Noir. Um, but Pinot is so versatile. Uh, I, my advice to people of, if you're ever stuck for taking a food, uh, a wine along uh, to a dinner party and you're not sure what's going to be for dinner, Pinot goes with just about anything. So, so that's a safe bet. So I'd bring out organic uh, Marlborough Pinot, really good wine. I would also bring the organic Sauvignon because New Zealand has a reputation around Sauvignon. Sauvignon's a great wine to enter a meal with. You can have it before the meal as as, uh, as a glass of wine, um, which is always a good idea. Or And you can roll into a meal with it and it goes with seafood and salads and this sort of stuff really well. Um, and, and it's, you know, what we, what we do, but it's also reserve grade. So, you know, I'm not shortchanging you here, Joe. 
um, bring it along, bring along the best stuff. And probably to balance it out, I would bring along something really interesting and unexpected. Okay. Um, so in that area, we actually make an organic Alberino. Mm. And, uh, we make hundreds of cases, not thousands of cases, but it's a really interesting wine. Alberino works well in Marlborough because it is, you know, hot, cold climate, um, you know, cold at night, hot in the day. And it suits that sort of great variety. Um, stylistically, Alberino can be a lot like Riesling in that it's got quite clean acidity and uh, it's it's quite a focused wine. So I'd bring the Alberino or we make another wine, um, and this is the other end of the spectrum to Marlborough Sauvignon, which is barrel fermented Chardonnay. So our sort of icon wine in New Zealand is, is called Iron Gate Chardonnay. And Iron Gate Chardonnay is when I meet someone in New Zealand, they will comment to me about Iron Gate Chardonnay because we've made it since the mid 80s. And as much as our international reputation is around Sauvignon, our domestic reputation is around Iron Gate Chardonnay. And it's a wine that is sort of the, my late uncle as a winemaker, this would be the wine that he dreamed up and then made and has been a, a, a look, outrageous success. And um, stylistically, it's its own thing. So very good food wine as well, barrel fermented, single vineyard um, Chardonnay. Uh, so so that would be the set, Joe, that I'd bring along and uh, that would cause a bit of conversation. Uh, <laughs> they would go well with the food, uh, irrespective of what was served. Uh, that would be it. Sold. I mean, sold, done. I'm, I'm good. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful lineup. I'll take that any day. Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, thanks very much, David. Thank you so much for being such an amazing guest and being so open and sharing the stories. Really amazing. I'm sure that the people who are listening really want to find out more about how about your wines and how they can follow you and how they can find you. So um, really quick, if you wouldn't mind just telling them how they can find you and follow you. Yeah, babbagewines.com. Uh, We're on Facebook um, and the usual usual places you'd expect to see us, Insta, et cetera. So, um, but drilling into the website, um, that's got a lot of detail about the wines by vintage, by variety, and, and specific wine. So if someone buys our wine, they can go look at tasting notes and awards and all that sort of stuff. So the website's first point of call. Um, and, and a great resource if people are interested in understanding what it is they're drinking and a bit more about us, our family, uh, and then obviously the, the stuff which um, people are posting uh, on social, uh, with mainly Facebook and Instagram. So uh, that'll be it. Great. Awesome. Wonderful. And I'll put this information on our website in the show notes for this episode and in our social media so people who listening can uh, find it. So, well, thank you so much again. It was just a real pleasure to spend time <laughs> with you. and. And I hope you're going to come to Seattle in the not too distant future. And I hope I've got, I hope to I've make it down to in my diary for whenever that go. is, Joe. There you and, go. Uh, it has been great fun. You're easy, uh, easy person to chat with, and uh, I enjoy really enjoyed the questions and uh, your ability to drill a bit further on things. Uh, yeah, it's 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 good fun. Really, well, good you made fun. it easy. I didn't feel like I had to ask anything. You just kept like it was like, oh, that, I was going to ask that. He's just saying it. I love it. So that's great. <laughs> and we're gonna. I want to. Uh, I have not been to New Zealand, and that's on my on my bucket list. So when I, I hope I can just yeah you know, bring you up when we're yeah there. we're not hard to find. Okay, good. You know, really, we've been at the same address for uh, you know hundred <laughs> plus years. So uh, there's no excuses, Joe. We'll be able to find you. That's awesome. Well, yeah, thank you, David. Really good. appreciate it. Okay. Brilliant. Thanks, Thank Joe. You. Talk later. Bye. 
All right. Well, we want to thank you very much for listening to our interview with David Babich from Babich Wines. That was, I mean, it was a really wonderful conversation. And I can tell you that David was just as warm and open and easy to talk to when we weren't recording as when we were. It was a real pleasure. And just in case you're worried about memorizing all of this, don't worry. You can find out all of this information about Babbage Wines, etc. on our website at thewinepairpodcast.com in our show notes for this episode. And you can follow Babbage Wines on Instagram at... Babbage Wines, or find them online at babbagewines.com or on Facebook at Babbage Wines. And we hope again that you'll subscribe to our podcast, The Wine Pair Podcast, and follow us on Instagram. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. And as we like to say, life is short, so stop drinking shitty wine. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>